This is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor, the Altamont Enterprise, and we have a very exciting guest today. His name is Victor Porlier, and the reason I know him and many of you know him is because he's a frequent letter writer to the Altamont Enterprise. He lives in the Hilltowns. But in just waiting to kind of get tuned up here, he has been telling me some incredible stories. So I think we're going to start with November 22nd, 1963. Yeah, which Victor says is the hinge on which this country turned. So tell us where you were on that day and your journey. Well, uh, I will, but I should add, I, I define the hinge as between November the 22nd and I think February the 7th when the Beatles arrived. Okay. 64. All right. And as that's the hinge. So it's a long it's hinge. It's a hinge. As things start to change, <laughs> as people start to think about what's been going on, and suddenly rock and roll hits this country. Okay. Sex and drugs and rock and roll. It's now in the 60s. Okay. Anyway, um, well, to, to begin the story that we were talking about, um, in 1960, I got my MA from UC Berkeley in um, public administration, and I went back eventually in 61 to join the J- John F. Kennedy's administration. I wound up in the State Department in the United States Information Agency, I mean, sorry, sorry, United States Agency for International Development and, uh, in 61. And um, in 1962, by that time, from the time I was at Berkeley till then, I had been a, a devoted reader of Aldous Huxley, all of his stuff, all of it, literally, except for a couple of essays. And I decided, I uh, told my wife, we were living in Georgetown at the time, you know, I'd like to retrace the steps of Aldous Huxley. He went and visited from Great Britain through Central America up to Taos, New Mexico, where he wanted to see his old buddy, uh, D.H. Lawrence, and his wife, Frida. And so she agreed. We thought we'd go. And so we flew down to Central America. Well, actually, we got, flew down from D.C. to Miami on the 21st, stayed overnight, and the next day in the afternoon, our plane took off to go to Latin America. That was the afternoon the JFK was assassinated in Dealey Plaza. So we got down to Guatemala because, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. It's easier to talk when there's no microphone. <laughs> um, we, we flew down to Colombia, Colombia, and, um, and then worked our way up through Central America. My dad was a career army officer. I'm an army rat, and so we had been stationed in um, Fort Gulick, which was the army ranger training school for jungle warfare at the time when I was a boy in the sixth and seventh grade. And we're taking a little side trip here because tell us about scouts when you were a boy. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, every scout team has a, has a scout master. Well, if you're on an army base, you're all army brats, which is a unique kind of way of growing up. Well, we're going to do that right at the moment. But uh, it's a hardier trip because every time you move from an army base to an army base, for boys at least, you had to fight until it was found out where you were in the pecking order, who you could beat and who you couldn't. And then everything was okay. We're all buddies again. So And so the scoutmasters were um, jungle warriors. That's where the training center was in Fort Gulick for jungle warfare. So we, our camping trips were in the jungle with sleeping hammocks up in the trees and watching out for snakes and all the rest. So it was Fascinating. A, and these oh. were good, it was, they, were, they were hardy men. These were, these were good guys. Anyway, so we visited them. We worked our way up through um, uh, uh, <coughs> Costa Rica where there had been a huge volcanic eruption. Everything was gray. It was, even the swans in the lakes beautiful swans, were all gray because the ash had fallen on them. We got up to Guatemala, and uh, I'll stop there just to say a couple things about the 
before we left on the trip. So I, you know, I'm following all this Huxley's trip. Uh, I mean, his work. I had actually corresponded with him quite a bit, and after his death, I corresponded with his wife, Laura. Um, Tell us a little about that exchange, that correspondence. Um, well, you know, it's more. It's more the young, the young. Uh, the young boy, the young man, uh, talking to an older man who uh, I had come to really appreciate what he's writing. He had a crisp, he was a brilliant man, crisp intellect, um, really sharp satirical writer. And Aldous Huxley wrote not simply Brave New World, but a whole range of other books, which are really quite interesting. But he was a thoroughgoing supernaturalist mystic, and, uh, and ultimately, uh, and that was attractive to me at the time, and so he just, you know, would say, suggest, he'd be like, thank you very much for your kind letter, blah, blah, and uh, uh, would write, uh, say, say, have you read this book, whatnot. One of my favorite anecdotes about all this was this. At one point, you know they have fires in the, in the northern, Cal- I mean, in California hills outside of Malibu and whatnot, and oftentimes they burn the homes down out there. You've probably seen those over the years. Mm-hmm. Well, one year, his home was totally burned down. And, I mean, all of his books and all of his memoirs and treasuries, the treasury little anecdotes. And so, of course, the press being the, uh, I'm sorry, the jackals that they typically are, he gets up to the burn site, and, they, and the, the, one of the young reporters, she thrusts the microphone into his face. Tell us, Aldous Huxley, tell us, Mr. Huxley, how do you feel about this? And he said, and this is, this is back in the 40s, I think, or 30s, 50s, he says, well, you know the um, the the TV commercial for the first time in your life feel really clean. That was his answer. That was his answer. So shedding all of his possessions. I mean, he was that was, centered. Yeah. Gosh. Uh, okay. Anyway, so so anyway, at that and we're in Guatemala, and we heard that he had died on the same day that Aldous Hux. I mean, that JFK had been assassinated in Dallas. Well, now, bear in mind, you know, I, here I am uh, following the, oh, I had, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot the footstep. Before we left, uh, one of my friends, who was not, not uh, religious in any sense, had read a book by C.S. Lewis called Screwtape Letters. And he said, you've got to read this. This guy had a real insight into human beings. He said, you don't have to believe in Christianity or not. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll take it. I took it on the trip with me. It was a kind of a sidebar reading. And I was in the State Department, and Kennedy had come up with something called the Alianza para el Progreso, and that was the Alliance for Progress, which was dealing with Latin America. And so my thought was, if I, I took some of his speeches and made sure that I stopped at the different embassies, you know, Guatemala, Panama, Guatemala, Honduras, and, well, that I could then go back to Washington, D.C., typical bureaucratic climber. Oh, when I was in the embassy in Costa Rica, <laughs> you know, at that place. So I had the, I, so I had Aldous Huxley's trip, I had JFK's Alianza stuff, and I had C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. So I learned then, we get, so that's, okay. So then we get to Guatemala, and up in the highlands of Guatemala is the Chichicastenango. It's a great market center for northern Guatemala, and the typical classic mm, colonial Spanish colony with a big public square, the major church on on the end of the square, and then all the Mayan peasants, because they're still practicing the Mayan religion there in the highlands, uh, would come in uh, carrying all their goods to sell at market day, and they'd tents all over the square, it was like sunny day, and, and uh, so then uh, the, in the morning from up to noon, the, the people would go from the 
in the sales places where they had their tents set, go in and enjoy mass. And then father would go, and then mother would go, kids would go. And then at noon, all the Catholic priests would leave. And suddenly there was gum copal incense burners on the front of the, of the uh, cathedral with just huge smoke all over the place. And these were the, the Mayan shamans had now come to take over the place of the church, which had been built on an ancient Mayan worship center. So then the mom and papa would come back, and they would go to the, with the shamans inside the church between the rows where they had special little kind of four-inch altars with sand in them, bringing in flowers, and I don't speak Mayan, but they were all doing their worship things. And it was, I come, I've never forgotten that. It was one of those, those, those Romano-pagan moments. Yeah, you could literally see the layers of culture. And yeah, exactly, exactly. Held through the you other. Know. And so uh, we finished the trip. I got back to D.C., um, uh, and we were gone for two weeks, and uh, at that point I heard that not only had Kennedy been killed on that day, the 22nd, but Aldous Huxley had gone out under an LSD injection. That's where you get the doors of perception, and the doors were based on an LSD. Well, anyway, that's another story. And uh, C.S. Lewis had died. All three. Now, because I, in my mind in those days, I was not a naturalist or materialist philosophically. I was a supernaturalist. I still am. And it just shook me. I mean, because here's the three guys. <laughs> they were your compass points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And boom, they're all dead on the same day. Well, so that, I'm marinating that stuff. And I think at that time, all this country was marinating things. It's gold. The 50s were an abnormal decade. They were just like... You know, the wars are over, the depression's over, we're going to do the best for our kids, it's going to be this golden era. I, I spent the 50s in Southern California, which was really that. And suddenly, all that normalcy, Eisenhower and the presidency, was coming to an end. And then in February, the Beatles came for their first trip, and rock and roll, sex, drugs, and rock and roll came to the United States, and we launched into the 60s. And the 60s really were a renewal of the 20s, the Roaring Twenties, which had gotten interrupted by the Depression and the Second World War. So tell me how, how so. Uh, this hinge has turned, and right. you say that what it's turned back to is the Roaring Twenties, where things were prosperous and... Well, it, what I'm saying is that after World War I, mm-hmm. there was, a, not only in this country but in Europe, a huge disillusionment set in. Uh, and there, people were thrusting, with a with, you know, question about meanings in life, they thrust themselves into uh, alcohol, dance, all kinds of you know, activities. So there, it became the roaring 20s for a certain segment of the class. That, that same kind of frustration, well, when you, when you lose a sense of meaning in life, a centering point for yourself, if you, if you allow yourself to think that, you start to get bored if you have no meanings, no drive, so you seek stimulation, and so you st- you're looking, I don't care whether it's your career, or you become a sex addict, or you become a, a, a druggie, or you pursue entertainment, or spectator sports, whatever you choose, you're trying to find meaning in your life, and you, but you need stimulation. Well, the trouble is that as soon as you start following those things long enough, the stimulation levels no longer suffice. They have to be increased. And so you're constantly upping the ante. It's like in the Roman, in the Roman circus. They start off with just gladiatorial combats, and then eventually they had mass slaughters and you know dogs trained dogs trained to rape women. I mean, it was just a terrible, evil period. Well, the same thing's happening in America today. You know, look at the movies. The, this, every now we have an obligatory sex scene, 
and we have high body count, a lot of blood is really popular too. All that is because we need increased stimulation. Neil Postman, a professor down at NYU, wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, probably one of the best books on contemporary America, period. And that's what we're doing, because you don't have meaning. So when this hinge turned... Drugs and sex and rock and roll, as and, you say, and, and in disil- your perception. Disillusionment but wasn't with, there also kind of a movement towards idealism? Yes. The we, idea of looking peace for and... Yes, but let me, let me say, first of all, you also lost trust in the institutions because suddenly there's something really wrong here. And so people looking for answers, looking for... You had, you had, in the 20s, you had peace movements, you had all kinds of the same thing. You had, you had idealism at the same time, but, you know... What what the beat started out uh, thinking, you know, of certain raising certain issues in the fifties, so the stuff was already happening, and the hippies essentially were just they got they just got lost in sex and drugs. But that doesn't mean there weren't people that were also very very concerned about the corruption in government, the war. I mean, we're now we're moving into the Vietnam War, which is a whole another story. Uh, so yeah, you have both things going on. And I went to some things in the mid. Well, even the actually late seven, early seventies, where people who were very much for peace, love, and whatnot, were also just in, into random sexuality. I mean, it was just you know there was so it was a mixed bag. It's a, yeah. Well, the era of the Kinsey Report, yeah, where suddenly well, sexuality could be talked about, and people well, could, it started earlier with Freud. I mean, Freud had gotten <clears> this <throat> whole framework begun. So you had Kinsey, and you had Hugh Hefner. Uh, you had. Um, well, if you're looking like Maslow said, self-actualization, uh, for some people, self-actualization was sexuality. I mean, it depends on what you chose. So I'm trying to remember the Maslow hierarchy is uh, the pre- one. Is, we, yeah, hierarchy of prepotent is, needs. You move up from satisfying yeah, right. your most basic physical needs Food, up to acceptance, shelter, and you move and, up to eventually to what he calls self-actualization, right. where you become, of course, in his mind, sort of a kind of a mystic in the same way that all this actually was. So let's get back to your own life and career after you returned from this trip to Washington, D.C. that must have been very, very different after Kennedy's death. What, what happened with you personally? As <laughs> I know I have before me a very long resume of varied sorts of things, but just tell us how it unfolded starting from that point. Well, I came back... Um, and uh, I was at that time, well, th- th- when I started out, it was uh, a management intern, and so they rotate you through different things within the department. So I had been in the Office of Management Planning, the Office of Congressional Liaison, the Office of Public Information. I used to go around speaking at colleges about foreign aid. Uh, and um, finally, I was on the Sudan desk, and um, which... Uh, led me to a lifelong study of Islam. I've been to the Islamic Center in Washington, D.C. back in the 60s. I probably have 180 more books on Islam in my library. Um, and then my, I became special assistant to the assistant administrator for African Affairs. <laughs> How's that for a bureaucratic title? And it was at that point, uh, by the time we got into late 64, one of the things that, <laughs> I don't know, th- this is not a story I usually go on the <laughs> talk about in public, but... Uh, John F. Kennedy um, decided that the why should the Federal Reserve System be allowed to uh, create money and charge the American taxpayer interest for it when the U.S. government could create the money? And so he was actually starting some silver certificates. So he alienated the Federal Reserve. 
And the Federal Reserve, as people may know, is not fully public. It's a privately owned banking system with a kind of an overlay of, of government. His brother, over in justice, uh, in contrast to his, the admonitions of their father, Joseph Kennedy, said, we decided he would go after the mob, and he did. And, of course, his, their father knew the mob very well because he'd made most of his fortune smuggling booze and drugs. And so, uh, so he alienated the mob. And then after the, after the Bay of Pigs fiasco, which, in which the air cover was withheld, and another story, uh, Kennedy was furious with the CIA. He was going to break it into bits and pieces. So JFK and his brother together had alienated the high finance community, they had alienated the mob, and they had alienated um, the CIA. And uh, then he died by one person shooting him. I'll leave it at that. Um, so at that time, the CIA wanted the, um, all the foreign affairs community agencies, state, AID, U.S. Information Agency, Arms Control and Disarmament, to be building computer systems that were compatible because of the new IBM 360-50s, those little tape decks rolling around and punch cards, but they wanted to have things compatible information-wise and so who would see what and, and what could, how it could be exchanged. And so the National Security Council, which is over in the old executive office building, as well as the, what was then called the Bureau of the Budgets, now called Office of Management and Budget, were jointly oversaw an interagency task force, and each of these agencies had to provide... A, a team to work together on creating this new information system it was called Foreign Affairs Information Management Effort, F-A-I-M-E, FAME. <laughs> and so the man that was heading it uh, was, uh, was a, just recently been the station chief at, in Tel Aviv and the second fellow from Costa Rica. Um, and so they were looking for a, a um, kind of a key executive guy well, I, in those days, I, I was an up-and-comer, and I was, I was selected to be on this. So for, I spent two years involved in that, in that network of people. And uh, I came back to AID uh, and was chief of information systems development to put this stuff into place. Well, while I was there, over in working on the interagency thing, a book came out um, published by one of the leading scholars at Georgetown University, uh, a man by the name of Carol Quigley. Now, Carol Quigley um, is, is a name that some people might recognize. He, uh, Bill Clinton was going to Georgetown at the time, and he learned from Carol Quigley how the game is played because Carol Quigley wrote a book called Tragedy and Hope, 1,300-page tome. came out in 1966, and it was designed for specialized libraries and people involved in those circles. He had been allowed into the archives of the, uh, uh, Cal I'm sorry, the Council for Foreign Relations, and it talks very much about how the game is played between the Anglo-American establishment, which is the title of a book that he had published posthumously when he died in the 70s and didn't come out until the 80s, which pretty much talks about how the linkages between the American elites and the Anglo elites have been working since the turn of the last century. And um, so... My boss said, you've got to read this book. So I read the book. And, um, and my idealistic democratic socialist illusions from Berkeley evaporated on that set of days. And then I read another book by Hayek called The Road to Serfdom. And I began to realize that my ideal of, of, of helping people and going back and serving could not, could not function 
in the foreign affairs establishment. And so, You've got to unpack that a little, because how, what was it in this tome, as you call it, that caused you to completely reverse or change course? Okay, I, to do that, I have to go back in time. Okay, because this is a, this is a complicated. Story. This is why this is how the world really works. Okay? Yeah. Okay. The and what I'm about to say is not something about, quote, Jewish bankers. It's about a small segment of people, some of whom are Jewish and some of whom are not. Uh, This is not a a set of anti-Semitic remarks. But the Rothschilds in Great Britain, who helped fund Cecil Rhodes, does that name register with you, Cecil Rhodes? Rhodes Scholar. Cecil Rhodes is the man that essentially orchestrated the the, uh, capturing of the gold and diamond mines of, of South Africa by butchering the Dutch Boers and taking it over as a colony for the Great Britain. That was funded by Rothschild. I mean, it gave them the initial capital. So when that's done, Cecil Rhodes hugely, and he's an uh, Anglo-imperialist, the two of them got together and they created something called the Round Table Movement. This is all documented. You can find this in history. And the Round Table Movement was the goal of, of expanding the, the British Empire around the world um, and particularly not only the Commonwealth, but beyond. Uh, and they would create institutions that would move them in that direction. And so one of the pieces of that program was the creation of the Rhodes Scholars, because it would bring bright young men from all over the Commonwealth plus the U.S. to Oxford once a year, and they would get vetted, trained, and go back out. And hopefully they would come up with, you know, essentially global worldview orientation, the same that the, that the Rothschild um, Rhodes operation had. They had a man named Milner who actually ran the operation, Alfred Milner. So the Rhodes Scholars are a place where the elites evaluate certain people to see, you know, who's got the base possibilities for the future. So the other thing is that right after the Second World, First World War, they created what was called the Royal Institute of International Affairs in London, which is Chatham House, and the Council on Foreign Relations in this country. Those are sister organizations for the, the process of pushing foreign policy on their different governments. Also, just before that, in 19, I'm sorry, in 1884, um, 1884, a group of people created the Fabian Society. Fabian Society um, included such people as H.G. Wells, uh, Bernard Shaw, uh, the Webbs, Bertrand Russell, John Dewey, and the Rothschilds helped to fund it. Um, and then. <laughs> As we get into the 20s and 30s, by the way, George Orwell, who got to really know these people, finally says, you, your idealistic notion of a parliament man's not going to work. It's going to wind up being a totalitarian, awful dictatorship. And he wrote a book, as you may know, titled 1984. Why did he choose that year? It was the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Fabian Society. Because that's what he foresaw. All the Suxley, who he trained and, and was a student of his, also saw certain problems. But he thought, what's going to happen? We're going to figure out how the elites are going to figure out how to essentially drug the people and program them. So he created Brave New World, both based on thoughts about what will happen as the Fabian Society moves forward. So when you read this as a young man, this caused you to... Say, wait a minute, this is not civics 101. This is something very, very different. And what I'm doing here is not necessarily serving the American people, 
my country, my heritage, this is serving something else. So what path did you take from I there? Left, I left the government in 1970. Um, I had to clear my head. I wound up with a, a divorce. Um, my wife took our two sons to Washington State, and I went to Montana and punched cattle with my uncle's cattle ranch. Really? Oh, yeah. Cleared my head. Riding fence, you know, bailing <coughs> hay, um, moving cows. I love riding horses. Uh, chinking log cabins, uh, blowing beaver dams. Riding horse uh, under blue sky and just thinking about a lot of things and doing a lot of reading at night when I wasn't exhausted. Yeah. Bucking hay is one of the hardest jobs I ever had. We spent two weeks getting the hay in. I was exhausted every night. So how long were you in Montana? Oh, just about a year. And then I did some traveling and reading, and I decided to move up to Washington State where my wife had, ex-wife had gone with our two sons. I could be closer to them. Got a job as a teaching assistant at Peninsula College and, and taught there. And then uh, had a contract with Antioch University at, uh, in Seattle. I taught there. I couldn't stand the faculty lounge after a few years. So Why? What was wrong with the faculty? I was the only person with the conservative leadings. And, uh, so how do you con- define conservative? Well, this, at this Just point, it's, they're ridiculous. I mean, no one, I, don't, I don't want to conserve an awful lot of the institutions, and those are just bad labels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, uh, to, for me, I, would, <laughs> I am at this point more of a reactionary, I think. And in terms of, I really, really believe the U.S. Constitution has a, a, a lot of good things in it. I really do believe in the First Amendment. I really do believe in the Second Amendment. And uh, these days, those things are it's threadbare. The Constitution at this point is a threadbare document. We're a nation of men more than a nation of laws at this point. Um, so I, I'm much more into decent. I believe I believe in government. I'm not an anarchist, but I do uh, believe more in cent- decentralized government. Uh, I, I'm not in favor of a world government at all because I've seen how bad uh, uh, a single centralized government can do, and how you know how difficult it is for somebody living in Altamont, for example, to influence what's actually happening in Washington D.C. Imagine the entire world trying to influence wherever the world government headquarters is. Many different cultures. Yeah, and but, different levels, and yeah. so penetrating. But so you were unhappy as a faculty member, and then ha- tell us how the rest of your career unfolded from Well, I, uh, I'm, I'm a pretty good economist. I was teaching economics and reasonably good with investments, so I thought, well, I'll become a registered investment advisor, and I did that and became worked with a company called Laney Advisors. I worked for a, a few years uh, that. I didn't like sales particularly to older people, when a, f- a product that you really thought through failed, and then they would be hurt. And I had, that was hard for me. So one day I was working with, uh, for, on a pension plan with one of Microsoft's subcontractors. Uh, they had figured out how to uh, repair Sun Microsystem computers, which Microsoft uses, but the Sun Microsystem computer at the time, while it was an excellent computer, they didn't know how to repair stuff. They couldn't get turnaround time so that their users had real problems. So these guys figured out how to do turnaround time, and then suddenly they had contracts all over the place to repair and replace, and uh, what? Not Bill Gates signed them up, and so you suddenly two two really computer great guys, computer geeks, that suddenly had a staff of fifty people, and they <laughs> they didn't know what how to really manage. And I was over one day talking to Sterling, the president, about um, the um, the pension plan, and and I noticed on this this desk was like your table. He was like aircraft carrier type desk with a glass top and little yellow post-it notes all over the desk. I said, 
Sterling, what's that? He says, oh, those are my to-do lists. And he said, well, what, 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 what? And he said, well, I get this problem, that problem. And I, so I said, well, but this problem, had you thought of this? And, and I had you thought of that? And he looked at me after a few back and forth. He says, Dick, how do you know about that? You're a, you're a financial guy. I said, well, I spent 10 years doing systems analysis <laughs> and management studies in the, in the foreign affairs community. I said, that's how I do that. He said, could you come down and help me? I said, I lived in Port Angeles, and I was down over um, where Microsoft is. And I said, no. Uh, I said, I, I said, you couldn't pay me enough. And he said, how much would that be? And this is 19, oh, what was this, 81, you know. Um, and I, I said, oh, 125 an hour, which I thought was pretty high. He says, can you start next week? <sighs> I said, plus 10% overhead. <sighs> and so I, we did a, I think he was pleased. We, we did a lot of changes there. He was a member of the uh, YPO, Young Presidents Organization. And they go to meetings, they talk with each other, and he, he said, you know, this guy, Vic Porlier, is do the So suddenly I had, I had an instant practice in, in the Seattle area. So you were a consultant for Ma- making management yeah, work for in, in, corporate, in corporate settings. And then I had a, uh, uh, a couple of nonprofits, and, um, and then one of the nonprofits, and this I'll just, I'm not going to talk the names, but uh, one of the nonprofits had a director on it, uh, was a multimillionaire. And um, they were looking for a management consultant. And um, they were looking for a firm, Booz Allen, Hamilton, and some others were replying. But um, the, the, my name, they said, well, we'll fly him down. They could afford it. When, so I flew down from Seattle to Southern California. And uh, we, um, we got to talking, and it was a good conversation. And um, they hired me. And for 10 years, essentially, I worked for them. And uh, so we did their finances, and I wouldn't say I was their conciliere, but I was something like that, <laughs> because uh, I'm a good problem solver. I don't say that pridefully. I mean, I just am. Um, and so whether it was finance or how they ran their foundation or uh, any number of different tasks, even helping them buy a newspaper or a hotel, I mean, I was the kind of guy. And in that, in that environment, I got to know... Um, the philanthropic community pretty well, uh, and and the various things that they were uh, contributing, granting to, and then um, so I, I and of course then I, that brought me back to Washington D.C. because there are all these think tanks in D.C. on the conservative, libertarian, conservative side of things. So I probably worked with most all of them over the over the years, as well as people in the state policy network. So how how was Washington? different from when you were there as a young man. You were different, but oh, tell yeah. us about the... Well, I think that the things are, are much more uh, rigid now. There's what we really have... Hmm, well, you've always had this, but what you have now... Have you heard the concept of iron triangles? Okay. This is a political science concept. It's a very useful thing for thinking about D.C., and one of the reasons why it doesn't change very well. For every policy area, I don't care whether it's health education, environment, defense, go down the list. Wherever there's a department or an agency, there is an iron triangle. What's an iron triangle? It's a three-sided thing. The first side is the bureaucrats that run this or operate the programs. The other side of it is the congressional committees in House and Senate that oversee that particular bureaucracy. Some of them are more involved than others, but so that, and the third, the bottom one, the most important, are the people that are either benefit or hurt by that bureaucracy. 
the programs. So, for example, in the environmental thing, you'll have people that uh, say um, <laughs> that want to have, say, let's say you're manufacturing solar panels, so you want to make sure there's a lot of objections to carbon carbon dioxide because the more the, the more that's put down, the more solar panels going to be. So that's one group. Or the defense department, they want to have wars, so the more military purchases are made, the better. So each of them have these triangles so that you at the bottom, and they're revolving doors because the people in the staffing of the bureaucracies move over to become staff, committees, you know, staff members or go to work for one of the people that are lobbying and paying money, and it's all within this, this triangle. It's called an iron triangle because... It doesn't change. It doesn't, well, and it's protected from the outside. Oh, this, you'll find this an interesting story. So when I was working with the interest, with the, uh, uh, my, my client... Uh, there was a Japanese businessman, part of Mitsubishi, wanted to get them to invest in a lot of money, and he took me out to a Japanese restaurant. We got to know each other. One night, he says to me, oh, Victor, you explain me um, American politics. And I thought, oh, dear, <laughs> how am I going to do that? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to him about iron triangles. And so I did what I just said, a little more elaborate. And he says, he looks at me, ah, same thing in Japan, except different. We don't look at it from outside, call it iron triangles. We look at it from inside, call it golden triangles, because that way we make all the gold. Well, that's an interesting perception. You know, yeah. so, so, so what you have then is on the, every four years you have a national election. And so on the, on the left, on the Democratic left, you have a number of groups that are, uh, you know, have, are more ideologically oriented, and they have certain... Program policies that they want. On the right, you have more ideologically oriented programs they want to have. Right, and so the, they, you people are accommodating to these the spectrum of organizations because the party's not a monolith, as you know. Each of them is a collection of different interest groups. So you have they have to balance this stuff out, and so so. Whether you're a Democrat trying to appease the far left or you're a Republican trying to appease the far right and still not alienate the middle, it's a challenge. That's what they do. So that's what we have. It's a national election every four years. Once that's done, the national parties disappear. You're back down to the one party that runs this country, and that is the Democratic-Republican Party, which, in fact, so far as verbal stuff outside, is pretty much the same thing. One of the things that Carol Quigley pointed out, that the views of guys that run Council on Foreign Relations and other things said, it's, it's a good thing to have two parties, but that they should be essentially the same, and then the people can throw one party out, throw the rascals out every few years, and they think they're getting change. So you're very cynical. No, no, that's realistic. Okay, because <laughs> it seems doesn't it, it seems to me like a European system where you have a whole series of parties. <laughs> when you vote, you can choose for someone that lines up with you, but you're not sure what you're getting in the end. Where in the American system, where you've got two two poles. You're compromising, you know, you're voting for the less of two weevils, but when you, you vote, you get a pretty, you're pretty sure of what it is you're getting. But no. you're saying, really, they're the same. Well, on the margins, you get differences. I mean, obviously, yeah. there are differences, but when on certain key things. But you're saying Kennedy, for instance, is the same as Trump. No, no, no. well, there are similarities, but what I'm saying is he went up against the establishment, Trump went up against the establishment in different ways, mm-hmm. but they're very different. One is one is a is is a Harvard man, um, high level prep school. The other one's a military academy warden, Queens boy. I mean, they're they're very different personalities. 
But in terms of what they have promised the country and in terms of They can only do so much because we get back to the Iron Triangles. Once the election's over, for all the rhetoric, the Iron Triangles, they're, they're more concerned with the bureaucrat and the congressman got to raise money. They spend most of their time raising money. They follow what amounts to what the, the, the um, staffers tell them and what the bureaucrats tell them, what the lobbyists tell them. So all that's happening within a particular area. And so the guy that's focused primarily, say, on education is not going to be that concerned about what's going on over here in health. And so the guys that are over here on health and the guys that are over in education say, well, I'll cut you this deal. I'll vote for your bill if you vote for mine. And that's how it works. So on your return to Washington, did you personally, did you feel like you were accomplishing things that were... Yeah, well, in some respects. Um, but you, do, you were talking about taking a, a blowtorch to a, a, an iceberg. And how long did you stay at that? 20 years, from essentially uh, the early 90s to about 2007. So that's a long time to be holding a blowtorch. Yeah. But you, you make feel you know, like what you're... You, you do what you can. Yeah. You do what you can. And where are you now in life? I mean, I know you're here in the hill towns. Well, but I, I, I like, I like, when I was living in Port Angeles uh, teaching there, I lived in the country. I had you know, 12 acres. I had my little farm, my garden. And uh, and you ha- you said you have a garden now, too. Well, yeah. I, I, no, we didn't this year. My wife had a quadruple bypass. And so this year we didn't do garden. But she'd been growing uh, organic gardening. And um, we, um, particularly uh, uh, garlic. She has a... A lot of there's high, some very high quality medicinal things, and she's very much into alternative medicine as as, as am I. And in that sense, in many ways, I mean, uh, in terms of what are seen to be liberal left views, I mean, I'm very much opposed to GMOs. I'm very much in favor of organic foods. I'm very much opposed to allopathic medicine that the Rockefellers created for this country, in contrast to all, alternative medicine. And so, there's a lot of things where I'm I'm much more. To the left than I am to the right. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to centralizing government, I'm definitely on the right. Well, this half hour has gone way fast, but are there any closing thoughts that you have for people? I wanted to mention that you have a Facebook page that has a large number of followers, and you post regularly on a variety of issues. Well, I should tell you what happened. I, um, I have a son. I have two sons, but I have a son in Atlanta. He's the chief information officer for a large uh, lumber wholesaling company, but he's also a young scholar. I mean, and I, for better or for worse, I think of myself as a scholar. I've probably got over 10,000 volumes in my library that I've built up since the 50s. In fact, I'm going through a shedding process now of looking at the books that I'll never read again. But that's hard to do. We're doing that, too, because yeah. well, you've got so much invested in that book. Uh, absolutely. So, even... so I, have three, well, I have three categories. Absolutely keep, absolutely throw away, I'll delay my decision on, the, on number three. Um, so Mark came up to visit us briefly uh, last uh, early December, and he said, "Dad, you know you're eighty. You're about to be eighty uh, next year." He says, "You you have had more experiences in more sectors of this country than anybody that he's ever heard of or met." And he says, "And you have a pers- unique view." And 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 he, he largely agrees with me, but he says, but you know, but there's some things I think you're wrong on, and that's that's fine. And he says, but you need to share that. And I said, oh well, how do I? You know, I'm I, I'm happily married. I love the country. I'm learning to get to know the community. You know, and I'm reading and whatever. And he says, no, you should get on Facebook. And I said, I, 
please. I've seen, I, tr- I looked at that, I just, puppies, kittens, and where I ate the dinner last night. And I said, that's not where I am. He said, Dad, there are two billion people, on, and they're not all into puppies and kittens. And there's some very serious people trying to really understand what's going on. Well, something you said, Melissa, a little earlier, people now are looking at alternatives for, for information. He says, why don't you get on Facebook and just start sharing? And I said, well, you know, he says, listen, I'll take some pictures. I'll take a picture of your library, and I'll take a picture of you, and we'll put it on Facebook, and, and you can just start posting stuff. So I thought about it for a couple months in February, last February, this, this year. I said, okay, so I started posting stuff. And, um, and I have got about close to 1,700 people now. And some of them are, and I, I try to I make sure it's very civil. Anybody that gets into, you know, really nasty stuff, I, I don't I defriend them, but then and then I'm very big into uh, I'm more of a question asker than an, than a blunt assertion maker. So and I really believe in civil dialogue. I don't know if you've seen my essay that I had uh, posted it with as uh, Islam and contemporary public discourse. No, I I looked through some of them, but I didn't read that. Oh, one. that's an older one. Okay, I should send you the link. It's, yeah. It'll give you, it'll give you a very real sense of where I'm coming from. If, you, if you're interested. Yeah. yeah, and we get a sense of that in your letters, too. You yeah. have a lot of philosophy in your letters. Yeah. Well, I've taught philosophy. I've taught comparative religion. Uh, I've taught uh, uh, logic and, and semantics. I've taught Middle Eastern politics, money and banking. Uh, I, I've had a lot. I, it's I, an interesting way to share things, and it's, it's happening across the world. You know, we, we used to have conversations with the people that we saw face-to-face, and now there's this reach that... You're absolutely right. You know, the, the, one of the interesting things, the number of people ask me to friend them that are living in Uganda, <laughs> India, Pakistan. I mean, I have people now in virtually every continent. And some of them, I mean, and they're only posting their language, but they read English. So, I mean, it's fascinating. Yeah. And so suddenly, it's easy to become... A, 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 a citizen of the world in one sense while you're still being uh, living in a particular nation. So, yeah, no, so I, I'm, th- I'm thrilled that I've got some wonderful people that follow me, and some, are, and some of them really challenge. That's fine. You want that, just as long as you're not being nasty about it. I mean, someone starts using, you know, says, oh, that's stupid. And I said, okay, I know that that's, makes you feel good to use ad hominems, but why don't you tell me why? Mm-hmm. You know, or that's ridiculous. Well, could you tell me why? Well, I know you're wrong. Well, on what presuppositions are you starting for? Well, I use logic. Well, what's your starting premise? Uh, most people don't think, they just emote, they're impulse driven. Well, thank you for making us think this morning. <laughs> I appreciate it. And we'll keep, keep publishing those letters. So. Well, you know, Melissa, I really appreciate the fact that you have published them because some of my friends have said, how do you get a, a, a liberally oriented newspaper to publish your letters of all people? I said, well, she's this woman, this editor, <laughs> is a very much more open-minded person than most. So. Well, we really believe here at the Enterprise that one of the problems of the nation is the polarization. Absolutely. And the more different voices we can get, both in print and on our podcasts, yeah. the better informed we all Amen. are. Amen. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me.